Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Trump's campaign platform basically talking about the Chinese raping the United States and, you know, and, and this whole idea that China simply, you know, ripping Americans off by, by, by making cheap goods. It ties into this American idea that we've had about China since the 19th century when, for example, the Workingmen's Party in California was hugely influential. And their argument was that Chinese migrants in America were ripping off the white working men because they weren't willing to be union members and they worked harder and they outcompeted the white man. Welcome to the Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Bloomberg's executive editor for global economics in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington. Taiwan, tariffs, currency manipulation. President-elect Trump has had plenty to say about America's largest trading partner, little of it flattering. A cursory glance at recent headlines, sorry, make that tweets, might lead a reasonable person to think we are headed into perilously uncharted territories. But as our guest today has written, it's all part of the ebb and flow, the surge and retreat in relations between China and the U.S. that go back more than 200 years. John Pomfret is the author of a new book called The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom. Those are the uh, names of America and China as translated from Chinese. Uh, And the book charts American ties with China going all the way back to the time of the American Revolution. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And John, you're more than just an author. Uh, for our listeners, you were a longtime Washington Post correspondent in Beijing and one of the first American students uh, into China once relations were normalized. Is that correct? Yes. I first went to China when I was 21 in 1980. It dates me a little. I lived in a 10 by 15 foot room with seven Chinese classmates in bunk beds. I'm 6'3", and my bed actually was 5'10", so I had to do a little yoga move each night as I went to sleep. And I spent two years then, and then I, um, altogether, from the 1980s until now, I've lived in China for about 20 years. Well, for many Americans and many Westerners, the relationship with China is really perceived to have begun with Nixon's visit in 1972. Your book takes a much broader historical perspective. If we just focus on 1972, what are we missing? Well, we're missing about almost 200 years of American engagement with China. Americans first went to China in 1784. That's when the first American ship landed in China to trade with the Chinese. And the basis of the relationship from the beginning, uh, basically there were two pillars. One was the missionary experience of trying to Christianize the Chinese. But the more important one by far was the commercial relationship. Because the United States in 1783, after they beat the British, found itself isolated, basically. The British had closed their ports to American ships. And going to China was kind of a Hail Mary pass by American merchants in the Northeast to find new markets for American products and to to buy Chinese tea. So the search for new exports was on even then? On even then, exactly. And, and, And because at the time, the United States was not yet a continental power. We were very much sort of hard up against the the Atlantic seaboard, 13 colonies, and trading was very important to them. And so going to China was a way to break out of the British 
uh, sort of uh, uh, embargo, if you will, and and to find new markets. And the first for the first product they sent to China, of course, was American ginseng, because a because a type of ginseng grows in the United States. Ultimately, the Americans sent a lot of Mexican silver to China, which the Chinese loved. And of course, we also engaged in the opium trade, just like the British did. Now, that's a good way of uh, condensing several hundred years just into a few sentences. <laughs> Dan was talking about how, for many people, the frame of reference is Nixon and Mao in 1972. But for many Americans today, their frame of reference really starts and ends with Donald Trump. Uh, he's and, and it's not even about exports. It's about imports. It's about how factories are moving to China. You hear Trump saying things during the campaign like China is raping our citizens. He's threatening to impose tariffs, talk of a trade war. How does this fit into the 200-year historical context of uh, relations with China? Well, there, there's always been an ebb and flow in American views on China, and from the Chinese side, an ebb and flow on their views of the United States. There's this rapturous enchantment that we've had with China, and there's also crushing disappointment that we've had in China. And I think Trump clearly comes from the crushing disappointment side of the ledger, in which he has argued that the Chinese have been playing the United States. They've been getting a better deal. Americans have gone out of the way to welcome China into the international community. We brought it into WTO. We got it onto, uh, we got it to sign a lot of international treaties. We helped it as it got to get back its UN uh, Security Council seat. But then the question is, all right, well, what have we gotten from China? That's Trump's question. And his argument was we haven't gotten much. And so it's time from his perspective to get tough on China, to punish China, if you will, uh, for not living up to our, our, our uh, beliefs about where, where it was going to go. Now, you have him coming in and saying these things, but isn't it true that a lot of presidents have been coming into office in, in the last few decades, all hot and bothered about China, and they, they say these things, and then economic and political ties actually get stronger during their term instead of weakening? That, that, Bill, that's a good point. Bill Clinton talked about the butchers of Beijing. Tim Geithner said China was manipulating its currency. I mean, what gives here? Right. So basically every president since Nixon has come into the office when when China was discussed in, in the electoral campaigns, he's, they've, they've come into office basically criticizing the policies of their predecessors, except for one. Uh, Barack Obama did not really criticize George W. Bush's China policies, uh, but he was he's an outlier from that perspective. So Clinton came into office basically saying that he was going to make human rights a major platform of our engagement with the Chinese, and he ultimately shelved that. George W. Bush came into office declaring China a strategic competitor, uh, and with all, for all intents and purposes, the idea of improving relations with Taiwan. But that was shelved as 9-11 erupted, and the Americans focused their attention on the Middle East. Would you say the, uh, the, the biggest blunder in history, or maybe the president who did the most to make China relations deteriorate was Woodrow Wilson? In part, yeah. Wilson was, uh, Wilson's, you know, the, the First World War, the, the, there was the Versailles Conference, the peace conference after the war, in which Wilson basically promised the Chinese that the Americans would help China during that peace conference regain one of its provinces called Shandong, which is sort of the cradle of Chinese civilization. It's where Confucius was born and regained it from the Japanese. And the Japanese had taken Shandong from the Germans over the course of World War I. The Japanese at the time were fighting on the Allied side, on the side of the Americans and the British. 
But during the conference, the British and the French revealed that they had made secret deals with the Japanese, allowing them to keep Shandong. And and, and in effect, Wilson was forced to break his promise to the Chinese. And that touched off a huge wave of demonstrations in China against the United States. And it really triggered, and it was sort of the tipping point in which young Chinese began to look not to America as a model for their system, but to the young Soviet Union as a model to their system. So that was a critical tip. And and China's really felt completely sold out by the United States during that period. So did government canteens offer freedom fries instead of French fries? (laughs) We'll get back to the currency manipulation uh, question in a minute. But, you know, through these ebbs and flows, John, the term you used, one thing seems to have remained constant over the past four decades, and that is the economic relationship has deepened as China's economy has become bigger. It's now the world's second largest. Now, how easy is it to hit reverse on a two-way economic relationship that's that important? Can any one man, even if it's a head of state, undo that? Has it come too far? I think it's come too far. I think the relationship on the economic side is clearly too big to fail. The Chinese are deeply, the Chinese factories are deeply incorporated into production chains in the United States. Uh, If you're going to basically force Apple to leave China, it's going to crash Apple's business. If you're going to slap tariffs on Chinese goods, the Chinese will stop buying Boeing jets. So the reality is that there is so much interplay between the two sides and so much mutual reliance between the two sides that... If you begin to punish the Chinese with tariffs on their goods, you're going to cause significant problems in your own economy. That said, the Chinese are more reliant on exports to America than America is reliant on exports to China. So uh, if you're going to punish them, they're probably going to suffer more than you. But the total effect on the global economy of that type of trade war is going to be Basically, the Chinese are going to, you know, you're going to get a serious wound. The Chinese aren't going to be, they're going to get a a deeper wound. But at the end of the day, both of you are going to be so wounded and the effect on the global economy is going to be so major that that it's almost incomprehensible to think that such a trade war could happen. In the 20s and the 30s, there there was a similar trade war and that led in, in, in many ways to the depression. And that's what one worries about. Basically, if you go down this road of tit-for-tat economic sanctions, you're going to have, specifically in two economies like the United States and China, which are so tied into the whole global economy, you risk uh, basically making, forcing the whole thing to ground, grind to a halt. So we're still a ways away from uh, Starbucks having to shelve its expansion plans into every corner of China? Yes, I think for and I, in fact, Starbucks looks like they're going to be opening up one of their high-end roasteries in Shanghai. They're just looking for a place to do it. So their plans for expansion are very are very bullish on China. That, that'll Starbucks down, has a fascinating fascinating case study in China because what it really, in addition to the coffee culture, which is Western culture, it also supplies public space to the Chinese because there's just so little public space, and the fact that you can go to a Starbucks place and hang out is something that's considered uh, extremely valuable to the Chinese, and they're willing to pay, you know, five bucks for an espresso to do it. And it's a very visible part of the surge in services and consumption, which is the other thing that seems to be missed uh, in the course of the dialogue through this year in the United States. It's as much a services economy now as it is this caricature of a sweatshop churning out T-shirts. 
Right. That that transition is happening. It's not happening as fast as some economists would like it, but the transition of China from an economy basically relying on investment and, as you said, these you know, the, being the factory of the world, to an economy that's focused to consumers is happening. I mean, in Shanghai right now, it's, what, 60 to 70 percent of the economy. In most of the big cities on the East Coast, it's, it's more than 50 percent of the economy, the service economy. And that trend is just going to continue as long as Chinese uh, salaries uh, keeps on, keep on going up. And they seem to be still growing, even though the economy is not growing quite very well, but salaries are growing well. And that'll, that allows the consumer to have more power. Well, why isn't that effect. message getting through? We do seem to be stuck in this debate that's framed around some low-cost you know, manufacturer, right? And many of those manufacturers are now moving on from China. Why is the debate frozen? That's a great question, but I think in part it's because we have, as Americans, we're stuck in the categories that we have to to think about China. So Trump's campaign platform, basically talking about the Chinese raping the United States, and you know, and and this whole idea that China simply, you know, ripping Americans off by by, by making cheap goods subsidized by the government. It ties into this American idea that we've had about China since the 19th century when, for example, the Workingmen's Party in California was hugely influential on the West Coast in terms of a political power. And their argument was that Chinese migrants in America were ripping off the white working men because they weren't willing to be union members and they worked harder and they outcompeted the white men. And there was and so a call this, to I, build a wall uh, with, between the U.S. and Mexico to keep out right, Chinese exactly. people, believe it or not. Right. right. So in, in, in 1883, the U.S. passed the, the Anti-Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically which banned Chinese laborers from coming to America because the white, whites were unhappy with that Chinese competition. And then Chinese began to sneak in. Uh, in great numbers across the Mexican border. And there was this call at the time so, to build a wall, which, you know, again, echoes today for different reasons, but it just shows you a lot of this ebb and flow. And so back to the issue. So we have a difficult time looking at China as a country that could, one, could innovate, two, could be much more reliant on its consumer sector because we think of the Chinese as laborers, and we always have. And so part of the uh, the positive part of our relationship was we have lots of very warm feelings for the Chinese traditionally, but also we also have these categories in, that we stick the Chinese as just worker bees, where we cannot think of them as, as something else. And, and that the, the, those categories tend to be, uh, in terms of looking at what a future China is going to develop, into, can, can be very constricting. I also think, in some ways, the media has had a difficulty telling that new Chinese story. Because the media itself uh, has a tendency to kind of get extra hard on China. One, because you look at the coverage of China versus the coverage of India uh, in the Western press, and we expect more from China. So we cover it much more, much more harshly in many ways than we expect from India. India often gets a kind of a free ride in, in its coverage in the Western press, whereas the China, or it's ignored. Whereas the Chinese, we focus on generally relatively negative things on China because we expect it to do better. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hold that thought, John. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. 
voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. And we're back. John, we're talking about media stereotypes of China and what drives that. Right. So it's not just media stereotypes. It's also like U.S. government stereotypes. An example would be um, an extraordinarily influential thing that the United States government, in fact, probably one of the most influential things the United States government has done in China in the last 20 years, which was to install an EPA air monitor system on the roof of the U.S. embassy in Beijing and then to begin to tweet out the uh, air quality index data on an hourly basis to folks that wanted to follow the Twitter feed. And that went viral. So millions of Chinese people signed up for this Twitter feed, even though Twitter is blocked in China, but there's ways to get around it. Uh, that was repurposed by also other Chinese websites that used it as a way to sell, sell products uh, like air filters. And this small act, which was not done by any sort of National Security Council or State Department, is actually done just by a small bureau in, in the embassy, uh, basically was singularly critical in raising people's consciousness about the air pollution problem in China, which really has led to forcing the government to embrace this issue as, as an important issue, not just because it's nice and groovy, but because it's an issue of social stability. But the question to ask is, well, why did the Americans put uh, an EPA sensor on the embassy in Beijing? Why not in New Delhi, where the air is equally as horrid? Uh, again, I think it gets back to this idea that the Americans expect the Chinese to do better. We've always had incredibly high standards for what they have to uh, achieve, which, which I guess feeds back into Trump's sort of bashing of the Chinese because he really thinks they should be able to do better. They should be able to do more to deal with our North Korea problem. They should be able to do more to help us with counterterrorism. They should be able to do, to do more uh, in, in dealing with their currency. But you don't see similar pressure being put on other nations like this who are also like China and in, in still in the developing nation mode. Let's talk a little bit more about Trump. You had a recent piece in the Washington Post talking about uh, five myths about the U.S. policy toward Taiwan, if I can sum it up that way. Uh, Trump has been obviously showing some friendliness toward Taiwan. He took a phone call from the president of Taiwan, and uh, you know he, he's kind of openly talking about uh, changing a policy that's been in place for some 40 years or so. What's going through the minds of Chinese leadership as they, uh, as they, as Trump uh, keeps making pronouncements on this issue? And could it really become a serious cudgel in the U.S.-China economic relationship? So Trump seems to be calling into question the basis of something that is that that for better or worse has kept the peace between China, mainland China and Taiwan for the last 40 some odd years by saying that the U.S. one China policy, which is a policy that basically says that there's one China, but it doesn't say that actually Taiwan is part of that China. It basically lets the status of Taiwan be undetermined. And because of this 
policy, which is extremely ambiguous. It allows the United States to conduct effective state-to-state relations with Taiwan, sell Taiwan weapons, support Taiwan in, in the international system without having formal relations with the government of Taiwan. And this kind of amb- ambiguous fiction that the Americans and the Chinese have kind of agreed to disagree on has kept the peace generally. Now, there's lots of people in the United States who support Taiwan who want to see more direct support and direct recognition of Taiwan because Taiwan indeed has changed significantly since the, since the time that Nixon went to China. It's become a democracy. It has the freest press in Asia. It's an LGBT-friendly society. It's a, it has a very vibrant religious and civil society. In, 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 and in comparison to China, it is, a free, it is a free entity or a free country. And so there's this push from people who like Taiwan and who, who are unhappy with the direction that China is going to, to basically recalibrate our relations with Taiwan. The problem is if you do that, you potentially incur the wrath of the People's Republic of China, and they have hundreds of missiles facing Taiwan. And they can do, and and 40% of Taiwan's economy is reliant on that of the PRC through investment and a lot of trade. And so if you begin to unravel this fiction, if you will, that's kept the peace in, in, in Asia, you embolden those in China who want to punish Taiwan potentially even embolden those in China who want to come into conflict with the United States. But the first potential casualty of all this will be Taiwan and the island of that 23 million people. And Trump, in doing this, seems to be interested in using Taiwan as a bargaining chip to get Chinese cooperation on other issues that the Americans are interested in, for example, trade or North Korea. And if you do that, what happens if the Chinese say, okay, we'll play ball. We'll, be, we'll squeeze the North Koreans more, but then you got to force Taiwan to negotiate uh, its political, uh, its effective political uh, defeat and, and unification with China. Or, you know, th- so if Taiwan becomes a chip, uh, if the Chinese then say, yeah, let's talk, uh, we'll do X, you have to do Y, uh, will, will Trump actually be willing to further sell Taiwan down the river? <laughs> so it, it, he puts his let's make a deal philosophy on this is dangerous if the Chinese want to play ball. And it's also dangerous if the Chinese say, OK, we're just going to get really aggressive with Taiwan. Then what happens? So I worry that that this is an initial gambit. It's sort of a feel-good gambit to try to show the pro-Taiwan people in the United States and people in Taiwan that, hey, we've got your back. But my next question is, what happens next? And, I, and that, 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 that's what, 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 worry, what worries me. At the Asia Society last month, I heard you talk about some of the economic dislocation in the Chinese heartland. Two things struck me. One, you talked about unemployed men who can't find wives and the growth of evangelical Christianity. That would shock many people, particularly the evangelical Christianity. Talk a bit more about that. So the missionary experience, I mean, Americans, of course, have been been going to China as missionaries since the 1830s. And in 1949, when the communist revolution happened, in a country of more than 400 million people, there were probably two two million or some odd Christians, uh, Protestants, and maybe two million some odd Catholics. These days, the evangelical Protestant population in China is anywhere between 60 to 80 million. 
And in the last 15 to 20 years, it has boomed, uh, starting in some of the richer areas, but also in the countryside. Zhejiang province, which is just south of Shanghai, is a boom area for that. So is Fujian. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of American missionaries in China uh, masquerading as English teachers, but actually they really are bringing the good word to the Chinese. And it's been enormously, enormously successful. And one of the reasons is that like a lot of post-communist societies, the Chinese have confronted with the collapse of their ideology and their belief system, they've confronted this moral vacuum. And lots of religions, Christianity being one, Falun Gong being another, Buddhism, Taoism being others, have, have moved in to fill this void in, in, in the souls of many Chinese. And it's been extraordinarily successful. And, and, and the evangelical message of a direct relationship with God has also been very attractive to Chinese entrepreneurs who, you know, if you think of your, you know, old Protestant theology, uh, you know, the Protestantism grew up as the bourgeoisie grew up in Europe. It's a very similar idea. And a lot of business owners in China, uh, specifically out of the Wenzhou region, which is a very successful sort of beehive of entrepreneurial activity, have embraced Christianity specifically because it talks about agency in your life, you know, your direct relationship with God. You don't need a church. And this, this appeals a lot to entrepreneurs and to capitalists. Now, unlike now, here, it has not taken on a political vein yet. Right. Not yet. Um, and it might not. I mean, the Communist Party is extremely worried about any organization outside of its control. And so the party continues to suppress religious, specifically Christian religious growth. And the party learned a very hard lesson in the, in the 90s when they attempted to uh, encourage the, the growth of nativist local Chinese religions as a way, as a counter to pro-Western ideas in China. And they effectively created the Falun Gong religious movement, which they then turned around and cracked down on in, 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 in the early 2000s. John, thank you for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion. And as the new administration finds its feet, we'd love to have you back. Daniel Scott, thanks a lot for having me. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as the newly redesigned Bloomberg app, where you can also find Bloomberg's other excellent podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. Do let us know what you thought, and you can reach us on Twitter at moss eco our guest is at, at J.E. Pomfret, and Scott, you are... Scott Landman. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. Bloomberg's head of podcasts is Alec McCabe. See you next week. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.